What the Just is created for adult audiences only. Content may be disturbing or upsetting to some. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What the Just. I'm your host, Douglas Kane. And I'm Ella Wolf. And we're hosting a true crime and judgment podcast where we ask the question, is it justice or justified? By taking real life situations, covering the details, then discussing whether the punishment was just or the person was justified. And now our story. Sixty-four-year-old Byron Smith makes his way down to his basement. He takes his place in a comfortable chair, reaches for a novel just to pass the time. Leaning on the right arm of the chair is a Mini-14 rifle, fully loaded, and on his hip, a 22 pistol of the same. This moment's been coming for quite some time, and Byron is prepared. Byron looks up from his book. He hears a window breaking, footsteps crunching the glass as someone makes their way inside his home. Byron stands up from his chair. He slowly brings the rifle up to his shoulder. The steps are moving through the house. He hears the steps coming closer, finally making it to the basement door. Byron can only see the lower part of the stairs. But as the footsteps come down, he sees the person's feet, then their legs, then their torso. Byron pulls the trigger. Okay, let's back it up a little bit. Let's talk about Byron Smith. Byron Smith, 64, retiree uh, in Little Falls, Minnesota. Yeah, tell me a little about him. All right. So he was a decorated Air Force Vietnam vet um, from Little Falls, Minnesota, born and raised. Um, but his, um, his career took him all over the world. He was a retired State Department technical security engineer where he specialized in Technical surveillance countermeasures responsible for prote protecting the U.S. people just like you and me um, and embassies from terrorism and espionage. He served in Bangkok, Cairo, Beijing, and lots of other places. He had like six visas all over the world. Oh, wow, so it's really a well-traveled guy, sounds very, like. Very well-traveled. Um, and also he basically trained at the same schools with people from the N uh, FBI, the NSA, um, you name it. He was training with them. He was like a spy. But, so th this guy is a, a Vietnam veteran uh, in the Air Force, mm -hmm. uh, decorated, right, you right. said. Uh, and then after that, uh, worked for the State Department. So he spent the bulk of his adult life, sounds like, uh, serving the country and serving uh, the people around him. Right. 
Exactly. Uh, he had eight, um, I believe, eight or nine medals and or ribbons from his time in the service. Oh, okay. Well, very impressive, actually. Extremely impressive. impressive guy. And uh, after the the State Department, what happened? Um, after the State Department, he came back home to um, be with his elderly mom, which every you know good son does. And um, not only that, he didn't just want to sit around and be a retiree watching TV or whatnot. He volunteered a lot uh, with youth groups. He was uh, a a math tutor. He was a coach for the science fair. Um, he, there's nothing he wasn't doing. I mean, it's insane. He was an Eagle Scout when he was a child. He had really? 51 merit badges. 51. 51. Twice the actual um, required. He had, he was an Eagle Scout honor. I mean, honoree. So, I mean, he was. So now, even after guy. even after retirement, it sounded like this guy served his community and went back out to uh, to give a piece of himself to his community. It sounds like right, uh, that's right. And he even um, still was going to scout conventions. This was the first year that he actually missed one. Uh, the year of the incident, correct. Uh, so at sixty four years old, this man has made all the scout meetings and done all this after uh, I presume after retirement, coming home, but. That's uh that's still pretty impressive uh, for a retiree still being that involved. So, yes, this man was a living hero. Is a living hero. It, it sure sounds like it. Uh, definitely a uh, as the as the term goes, a model American. Right. right? Exactly. So uh, let's get into to what led up to this. Uh, let's uh, let's cover some of those bases, and uh, I think we'll do that. Uh, right when we come back. So bear with us just a few more moments, and we'll come back with leading up to what made Byron Smith practically a household name. These are people who have stolen my guns. I figure they're willing to use guns if they steal guns. And I decide that I've got a choice of either shooting or being shot. The guy came down the stairs and I shot him. All right. Welcome back to What the Just. Uh, Taking a look at the Byron Smith case. And uh, we've already talked about uh, some of Byron's background and uh, what kind of man he was and what kind of uh, um, civil uh, things he did for his community. So, uh, But uh, the incident that we are here to cover happened on Thanksgiving Day 2012. So t- tell me what exactly led up to that. What was his mindset? What all happened to him to, to bring him to that day? Right, right. Um, it's worth noting that a lot of this information was suppressed from both the media and the public. So, but we want to get as much information as we can out there about what actually happened. Um, previously, um, now we know that Byron did not report all of these incidents, but he did report some of them. Um, there were, including uh, six felony burglaries. Within a five-month span between July and November. To, to his domicile. Correct. His home. To his home, 
with a, an initial loss of $53,000. Uh, more was discovered later. But uh, that's a lot. It really is it, a lot. It would be a lot out of my pocket. I know that. Right. Contrary to what Lubert's said. And, and who's that? Lubert's was the detective on the case. Ah, from the right. sheriff's department. Okay. Right. Um, and his comment was that not much was stolen from Byron. $53,000 worth of product or, or belongings was stolen, and the uh, sheriff's department's response was, well, not much. $53,000. That's a lot. For some people, that's more than you make in a year. Right, it, it, and it really is. Right. That I would consider that a lot. That uh, is a lot. I would not ag agree with the sheriff's department on that one. There were four actual violent break-ins, meaning they broke three doors and a broken window. I'm sorry, but that's threatening. That is scary. Three broken doors. Three broken doors. I, I would presume three broke doors. That means a, a door every time they broke in type situation. Right, and those doors had to be replaced. That's money out of his pocket. More theft. Yeah. Um, there were two attackers in the sixth attack, um, which were That's the one adults. in question. That, uh, that's the one we're going to be covering. Right. Right. Um, which were all adults, mm -hmm. which means they knew better, and a 17-year-old. So what all uh, what all was stolen? I mean, uh, $53,000, but it wasn't all just cash. Uh, what, what was actually stolen? All right. There were three guns stolen. There was um, money. There was gold, jewelry. You're going to love this one. Military medals. I, they stole his military medals. They stole this man's medals. Which are worthless to anyone else but him. Why would why would they even take it? I I don't understand. I don't know. Mm. Um, they also stole a GPS unit, a camera that was worth six thousand dollars, I believe. Mm. And also an heirloom, which was his father's Rolex. His father's Rolex watch. His father's Rolex watch. Definitely an heirloom. Definitely an heirloom. And wait, it gets worse because his father received that Rolex watch from the French government for being a POW in the war, in World War II, for 19 months. He was a German POW for 19 months. And the French government gifted this watch to his father in... 1946 that that one item that one item i would say was worth more than all that cash gold all that can be replaced you can't replace a gift from france to his father yes it's irreplaceable so even his father was a war hero and gave back to the nation right unbelievable unbelievable, unbelievable. Mm. Mm -mm. so um uh, what what else uh like I said, the guns were um, t were taken, which that in itself is scary because now not only if they if they come back, now they're probably armed. When they right. Do. Well, if if he had multiple break-ins, then it would stand to reason that uh, it's very possible the same person that stole the guns is the next person through the door, so to speak. Right. So that yeah, that's scary in itself. Right. And um, not only did these kids steal from him, but one of the kids also worked for him at one point. 
He was helping these kids. Worked for him. Yes. Him and another kid worked for him, and they both had stole from him. Uh, in, in what capacity are we talking? Just uh, the teenager cutting the yard? Uh, correct. They just mowing lawns, helping with chores around the house. Okay, I see. So they, they maybe, and I might be reaching slightly here, but it sounds like uh, they come in, they work for him, and they case the place. They see what he might have to take. Sounds like. Right. Okay. Um, starting back in June of 2012, he was being constantly harassed, um, hearing the doorbell ring between midnight and 2 a.m., and then go and no one would be there. But this just kept slowly escalating. Um, the first week of July, $3,200 was stolen. Well, well, let's back up. Now, you just mentioned that they're, they're ringing the doorbell in the middle of the night? Yes, they're just harassing him. So we're, we're not talking about just a burglar. We ain't talking about someone that just came and took a monetary value from him. We're talking about... Harassment. Ter terrorizing. Terrorizing him. Correct. Mm. Um, so also uh, from August to September, he was su um, suffering with misplaced or missing items. Um which actually led him to not want to leave his home. He missed um, the scout annual scout weekend, which he had never missed before. So in September, Smith's doorbell would ring in the middle of the night about two times a week, but no one was ever there. So it's just slowly escalating. And this is in September. So um, by mid-September is when he actually missed the scout meetings. So he, this is the first one he had missed in four years because he's too afraid to leave home. Really? So something that he, he has on his schedule, he makes no matter what. Uh, here we go again, giving back to his community, going to the Eagle Scout meeting, and he misses it because he's scared to death to leave his home unattended. Right, exactly. Holy moly. Right. Well, it's getting worse. September 10th, okay, uh, he notices two missing guns. Now he's getting paranoid. Now he's wondering what what's going to happen next. Sure. You know, it's just slowly escalating. Um, he's becoming compulsive. He's check, He's locking all the doors all the time, even the vehicles in his own garage, um, hiding the valuables in his house. Um, went and he had to go and replace the guns that were stolen. And all these were reported to the sheriff's office because they're the ones that said, ah, not much was stolen. So right. he, he's reported these, right? Okay. Right, exactly. Um, he was even testing the doorbell to make sure that he's not going crazy, and he's actually hearing, you know, these people are terrorizing him. So um, he goes out of town. Then um, he has, he's burglarized again. But this time there's copper wire, um, a, a $1,200 steel chainsaw is, is taken, um, well, no wonder he didn't leave his house to go to the, the scout meeting. When he did leave, he, he gets burglarized again. Right, and one of the kids that had worked for him, he, he said that uh, he admitted in court that there was just too much to carry. <laughs> so uh, the reason for the multiple break-ins is because they couldn't get it all out in one haul. Right. Unbelievable. Right. Okay. So... Um, by compulsively locking everything, he's starting to feel a little bit of safety, right? But um, a deadbolted door in the basement was kicked in to gain entry, and $32,000 worth of gold coins, $6,000 Nikon camera, and miscellaneous jewelry, his medals, and his dad's Rolex the Rolex were taken you mentioned. at this time. Uh, yes. It's wor worth more than everything you just listed, in my opinion. I know it would be to me, but... 
$32,000 worth of pure gold coins. So it sounds like this guy uh, has a lot of the uh, same mentality. As, as I know a lot of people I've come in contact with that some of his retirement is not in paper money. It's not in a 401K. It's not out somewhere. He's invested in gold and, and brought that gold home to the safest place he knows, but not safe anymore. Right. Uh, and, and they came in and took that from him. That's his retirement, his security, and they took that. That's mm-hmm. that's awful to have that uh, type of rug pulled out from under you, so to speak. Right, and they're slowly but surely taking this man's peace of mind. I, I can imagine. I, I would be at wit's end. So October the 29th, what, what happens there? Smith spent uh, an hour and a half in the ready room, uh, as they say, at the sheriff's office. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Um, yes, he was waiting for Jamie Lubertz, um, who was assigned the investigator. Um, Smith brought a door panel in as additional evidence. He literally is bringing in what these people are destroying as evidence. He's doing their work for them. So uh, as while he was there, he discussed at length about the break-ins, how afraid and hopeless he was with the receptionist and the deputy. The deputy said, if they were really want to get you, they will always find some way in. So it sounds like he was almost dismissive about it in the sense of, uh, well, if it ain't no sense in locking your door because they can just bust it down if they want to. Right. Uh, that, or at least that's the air I get out of that quote. So, so far, this deputy has said, well, uh, they didn't take much. And, uh, you know, if they really want to get to you, they'll always find a way in. Right, and after two hours of that attitude, he was disgusted and just went. Well, home. I would be too. I mean, uh, to sit in front of uh, uh, public servants wearing badges that's supposed to help keep you safe and 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 help that he's not getting a response, he's not getting anything back. I, I can imagine the frustration. Right, and he's steadily getting more and more paranoid. He's hearing about other uh, vandalism going on in the neighborhood. There was a hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of damages in auto glass in Swansville. Um, so they're just doing whatever they want and no one's doing anything about to stop them. Well, it sure don't look like they put much weight into uh, trying to stop this. Right. So now he's starting to worry about his, his, his car and he's um, actually parking it down the road because he's afraid it's going to be vandalized. The Monday before Thanksgiving, Smith cleaned out his space in the three-car garage to store his 1969 Nova, working only four hours on only four hours of sleep each night and carrying a pistol for protection. Um, he also had his neighbor help him put his motorcycles into the garage. But, yeah, you know, even bringing those into the garage, if they're breaking into his house, you know, that's a pretty minimum protection because you're bringing that stuff into the very place that they're getting into anyway. Right, but I guess that would be a little bit of a deterrent if they can't just roll it right off the yard. Well, very true, very true. So, But he's taking measures. It seems like every time he's taking more and more measures to try to protect his property and himself. Right. All right, so that uh, that gives us a lot of information on Byron Smith and uh, kind of his state of mind and, and some of the events that led up to the November uh, 22nd incident. So let's look at it on the other side. What, what about the, the teenagers that were involved in this? Okay, so technically they were adults, but uh, teen cousins Nick Brady, 17, and Haley Kiefer, 18, were from Little Falls, Minnesota, and from all appearances seemed like your everyday teenagers. They were involved in activities at school and um, Taekwondo, Flag Corps, um, stuff like that. No one would have guessed what else was going on with them, but 
Um, it was actually um, stated by sh- the sheriff, Wetzel, that um, Brady and Kuiper were there to rob Mr. Byron Smith that day. Before the killings, they were involved in a string of burglaries in the neighborhood. Um, one of them was even allegedly on drugs and later discovered that Kaylee herself was um, on cough syrup, an extreme amount of cough syrup. So they have a history of, uh, uh, I don't want to say rap sheet because that does put a little bit of a stigma on it, but they, they did have a history of, of run-ins with the law and, and, and break-ins and things. But All right, but their connection to Byron, you know, because in this case, a, a lot of people have talked about where was he singled out. So w- what's their connection, first connection with Byron? Okay, so the year previously, the summer, um, Byron and, or no, excuse me, Brady and uh, some other friends of his were looking for work. They approached Byron, and he employed four to five of these these kids to do some work for him around his house. Okay, so just picking up Liam's things. I think uh, one article I read talked about them using his tractor to help clean up. I think he owns uh, 10 to 11 acres. Right. He, he was just doing some, having them do some lawn work. Okay. And uh, so they came in to work for him uh, that summer doing some odd jobs and things. Uh, and my understanding is they came back uh, the next summer, same group of kids from the same high school uh, that uh, Kiefer and Brady were involved in, uh, came in in 2012, that summer, and hit him up again and said, hey, uh, you know, we can do some more yard for uh, work for you again this year. Right. Uh, but that didn't happen. No. Uh, my understanding is that uh, he actually conveyed to his neighbor that uh, during that dormant period between the time of them working the first time and the second time, he, he noticed some things were missing, uh, moved around. He even made mention they, they uh, broke his tractor, uh, didn't really like, you know, what was going on. So he just decided, didn't accuse them, didn't uh, say it was them uh, on that first occasion. He just said, you know what, I, I'm not going to use them again and told his neighbor, I just told them no, I didn't need any. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like we discussed before, um, that's when, after being turned down, that's about the time that the doorbell started going off in the middle of the night and uh, the banging and the beating and, and the passive-aggressive harassment. Harassment, yeah, very good. Right. Um, Mr. Anderson had actually told um, them that Smith tried to be a friend to the kids who worked on his land that summer. He fed them dinner. He didn't even um, – he let them use the facilities. He had them chopping wood and clearing trees using the tractor and doing odd jobs. Um, it was also later discovered that um, they were involved in a string of burglaries in the neighborhood. So we, not, not just Byron. He, he wasn't exactly singled out. He was just uh, one of the many victims. Is that correct? Right, right. Um, in fact, um, there were prescription drugs found in the vehicle that they were in um, where some the uh, there was a – retired teacher in the area that had been ripped off he was out of town and um, they had stolen some prescription drugs and other things there i believe they found what nine bottles of prescription drugs in the car uh, eventually wow leading up to that day all right we have some uh on the appearance some average american teenagers high schoolers uh but their dark secret was that they they robbed. Uh, they burglarized homes. Uh, they come in. In fact, uh, we come across some text messages that even show the 
uh, I believe it was the October 25th, uh, where they had text back and actually used um, Byron's name in a text saying, mm-hmm. hey, what about Byron's? And yeah, how about tomorrow? And sure. So, and sure enough, right after that, Byron gets uh, robbed. So, and that was the robbery that happened the month before. That's the one that he reported. That's the one him and his neighbor went down. Uh, that's also the one that the sheriff's department came back 20 days later and said, hey, we, you know, we didn't find nothing. Right. And, you know, he, and he's at his wit's end. And during that time uh, of those four weeks leading up to it is when Byron claims he was carrying a gun with him because he was uh, felt unsafe, that he, w- he was – you'd already mentioned that he moved in everything. He moved in his car and his bike and really trying to batten down the hatches against what's going on those last four weeks. Right. Okay. Um, yes, and there was even a text that was discovered between Nicholas's – sister and Kiefer herself from the burglary that happened the night before the the killings yeah they text each other the the sister of Kiefer Mm -hmm. uh, text each other making reference about the robbery that happened the day before Thanksgiving right exactly okay so these these teenagers has have already set up a more or less mo uh, of robbing these houses and taking things and it was common knowledge in their little circle that that's what they did right and in one instance um i believe it was kiefer that had alluded to the fact that they were bonnie and clyde and you know that's a huge statement to, that, to uh, the state of mind and what they thought they were they knew they were criminals they knew they were breaking the law and to set themselves on that same pedestal goes to show you their state of mind they they didn't care about anybody else just them right and you can see how many people were involved. I've seen, I've seen, I don't know, at least four to five teenagers that were involved in this gang that it's been referred to, and how nonchalant they are about terrorizing this man in his home, along with other neighbors and easy, easy targets. So, with that in mind, uh, let's take a small break, and when we come back, we're going to start discussing exactly. Uh, what happened on November 22nd and possibly even from Byron's words himself. I feel a little bit safer. I'm totally safe. I'm still shaking a bit, but a little bit safer. I refuse to live in fear. All right. Welcome back to What the Just. We're talking about Byron Smith and what happened 2012 Thanksgiving Day. And uh, let's go over some of the facts and uh, what happened exactly on that day. So that morning, uh, my understanding is Byron... Uh, went over to visit with his neighbors, uh, Mr. Anderson, and while visiting there, he saw uh, the red Mitsubishi that he recognized uh, driving in the area uh, that him and Mr. Anderson were uh, visiting and even mentioned to him, hey, I, I think that that is the vehicle that is involved in these neighborhood burglaries, including several of my own. Uh, but he expressed his uh, suspicion 
Uh, and they went back to his house. Okay, uh, shortly after, uh, he took the truck, his truck, out of the driveway and moved it uh, in front of a neighbor's house, uh, just a little ways down the road, or I think uh, two blocks is what I'm seeing the most of in some of these articles. Uh, two blocks down the road, uh, he goes in his house. And this is where it starts getting very interesting, where it's not so cut and dry, and this is why there's such a division over whether this was just or justified, or justice served. So he goes back to his house. He goes down into his basement. Let me reiterate now. The basement of his house is not necessarily what you always call a basement. Uh, looking at the photographs and the files, this is a completely finished out room. It has uh, lounge chairs and bookshelves and a, uh, and a workshop. And, and uh, it's not just that cold basement you think about. And it also opens up into his backyard because, remember, his house is on a riverbank. So uh, you can actually enter the basement from the front of the house that is facing away from the road. The back of his house is actually the road. Uh, but he goes back into his, his home, okay, and... He is anticipating, you know, something had pretty pretty evident, you know. Uh, in Byron's word, he sits down to read a book, and and uh, shortly after he hears glass break, uh, which the glass that he heard break is uh, Brady uh, breaking the window and coming into the home. Now Byron again anticipating this. Uh, he actually has two loaded guns sitting there waiting, you know. Um, and when Byron comes in, he comes, uh, he goes straight to the uh, stairwell that comes down into the basement. Uh, and as he makes his way down, Byron does. He stands up and he shoots him. Uh, shoots him once in the torso. Shoots him twice in the torso. And this is, here we go, uh, depends on if you're listening to the prosecution or you're listening to the uh, defense. Uh, many say that the boy was still coming at him after two shots. Uh, but the prosecution says, oh, no, he was falling down the stairs, not coming at him. But the third shot was the fatal shot, and that was the shot to the head. Right. Okay. And, again... Because of a recording they found later, uh, they were actually able to hear this, an audio file on this. And uh, Byron even says after those three shots, directly after these three shots to Brady, you're dead. Right. And he says that, and you can hear it, and it's very chilling. And, uh, it's uh, hard to listen to. It, it, it really is. And then uh, just within two minutes... Within two minutes, so it's obviously already prepared. Within two minutes, he has a tarp that he pulls over. He takes uh, Brady's body, puts it on the tarp, and pulls it out of the way. And he refers to it as pulling into his workshop. Now, his workshop is kind of around the corner from the stairwell. So he did pull Brady's body kind of out of eyesight, uh, which also don't look good for, for Byron. Okay. So it took him about two minutes to do that. And then he stays exactly where he's at. He reloads his gun because he already knows there's more than likely more than one person. Right. right. This man is scared to death in his basement, which, by the way, looks like he probably spends most of his time there. Uh, it looks like a comfortable place where he probably reads, maybe watches TV. 
now another 10 minutes lapse. And here we go, another brick in the wall that does not look good for Byron. Uh, but another 10 minutes lapse, and that's when Kiefer, uh, the female, comes looking for her, for her cousin. And in the audio recording that they found, um, they hear her enter the house, and they hear her come down the stairs. Right. She's even calling for Nick. Uh, yes, in the recording, there's a brief moment. You can barely hear her out, almost whisper Nick right. uh, looking for him. Um, but she comes down the stairs, a similar situation where she gets halfway down. Uh, Byron takes the same rifle and shoots. The difference uh, in this particular instance is that the rifle jams. Uh, I believe he shoots her three times. Right. Uh, in the audio, you can hear her uh, being hit. You can hear her saying, oh, my God. Um, and But when the rifle jams, and, and this is, here we go, another another brick against Byron. When the rifle jams, it's almost a sarcastic, oh, I'm sorry. Right. And puts the rifle down, pulls the twenty two pistol, and continues to fire. Right. Okay. Uh, now Byron shoots again. She goes limp. He thinks she's dead. He goes over and gets another tarp, does almost the identical thing, pulls her over on the tarp, and then pulls her into the workshop. But because, again, he has no idea. Is there more? He pulls her over the side, but as he does this, he realizes she's not dead. Right. She's still struggling to breathe. She's still alive. And he uses, and I, and I am going to quote, this is on several sites and several articles, he uses what he calls a clean finish shot. Right, which and he does take, not bode well for oh, him. Oh, no, it does. It looks horrible, and, and, it, and I admit, even, uh, even an outsider that would normally side with a homeowner, I'm hearing this in awe and just... Uh, it sounds very cold. Horrible. But he takes that uh, clean finish shot by putting his pistol underneath the chin and uh it was a clean finish shot the threat's gone in his mind right and right and i think uh in going through this and we're going to put a few more details on top of it but i think this starts pointing toward how broken this man is right uh, he, he was scared to death right scared to death out, out of his his mind and at his wits end and i think uh you can say it was cold-blooded but I think it's more along the lines of this man is just broke. He is mentally taxed to the end, and therefore the only way he knows to cope with it and to deal with the situation is to 100% terminating these two people that have broken into his house. Uh, it, horrible manner, horrible manner, and he done so many things that, that really um, counteract him being a home defender into a premeditated murder, and that's what the DA went on. So let, let's look at a few more cases before I go down that rabbit hole. Um, so not only uh, did he put these two bodies on a tarp, pull them out of the way, but then he sets right back down. And I would only imagine it's because he, he had no idea if there was more coming. Right. He was waiting for anyone else from this gang. Right. Right, and um, so he sits there, and nothing happens, nothing. Okay, 
Uh, but because of the recording device that he had started and captured all this, he literally sits down, and you can hear him mumble. You can hear him uh, not only before the shooting but after the shooting almost talking to himself. And, again, uh, this is what the prosecution really drove home to the jury to say how cold-blooded this man is. But to me, it speaks more to how broken he was. How many people do you know sit in a house by themselves um, and just mumble and just talk? Uh, I know the only time I, personally that I've done it is when I was that stressed. And when you're, you're talking, they're not going to anymore and I'm going to do something about it and I've went to the police and, I, and he's preaching to himself. He's at his wit's end. He's at his wit's end. They've it, taken his peace of mind. There's right. nothing left. So after this you would think well any logical person uh, would call the police and say hey I just shot two people that came into my house. He didn't do that. Right. He didn't do that. Now uh, the neighbor uh commented about this saying that well that's the kind of man he was okay because the reason he gave was that one he waited and that's why the huge delay that he waited he was scared to death somebody was come else was coming but by the end of that day or toward the end of that day several hours after the incident you would go well, well there's nobody coming why didn't he call mm-hmm. and uh the neighbor says well that, that's the kind of guy he was and he even said well I, I didn't want to disturb anybody on thanksgiving right now, this guy's he's out of his mind yeah he's not thinking rationally who would right he not only has he been in pure torment especially in the last four weeks but he just got through taking two people's life uh whether that was righteous or not he still did it right and i can imagine anyone thinking 100 percent clearly under those circumstances. No. Uh, in fact, if, if you did, I, I'd almost be scared of you. Right. In fact, didn't they even mention that he retreated to a closet? Uh, one, one article that we did come across, and um, not all, but one of them did make reference to he went right back down in the basement. He didn't leave, and he even overnight retreated to a closet in that basement Right. Uh, because he was still so scared and uh, still traumatized from the events. Now, the next morning, uh, twenty, right at 22 hours after this, so this is around 10 o'clock in the morning or so, uh, he calls his neighbor, his trusted friend, and says, uh, hey, is there any way you could contact a lawyer for me? Right. And, uh, of course, the neighbor and him realize this is the day after Thanksgiving. There's no going to can't get a hold of a lawyer unless you already have one, you know, in your in your Friday. black book, you know. So uh, the neighbors, pretty much after the discussion of nine, I don't think he said. Well, I think I've solved, or I, I believe the quote was, "I think I have stopped the neighborhood break-ins." Mm-hmm. And you might want to call the sheriff's department. Right now, so here we go. Another brick in the wall against Byron is that he didn't call personally, and he waited twenty-two hours before he notified anybody. So right. Mr. Anderson calls the sheriff's department. They show up, uh, immediately start assessing the situation and obviously taking Byron in uh, for questioning. Uh, but covering this case, and this is where we're kind of, I, I know we could be leaving a lot of facts out. I know this case has just a, a, a well of information. Uh, we have scraped the surface. 
uh, looked at it, scraped a little bit more, scraped a little bit more, and before we know it, we have dug a hole so deep that one show can't even remotely come across this. Right. Uh, but this is what I want to discuss for the next few minutes to, to, to wrap the show up is with the facts that we've presented and, and the story that we have told, do you think Byron deserves the sentence because after going to court, it was handed down first-degree murder in both cases. That man is, uh, is sitting in prison doing a life sentence, a double life sentence with no possibility of parole. So is it justice that that man is sitting in prison, or was his actions justified and the court system failed him? Right. Well, I think I know where I stand after reading. And don't get me wrong, I have been back and forth. I've heard the audio, and I've gone, but why did you say that? And why did you do this? And, and it depends on who's painting that picture, too, because you can look at it and say, oh, he was, he was hiding his car so that nobody would know he was there so he could kill them. No, he was hiding his car because it had been, there had been vandalisms in the neighborhood Therefore, he was trying to get it out of the neighborhood. He didn't want it to be vandalized. So there, it, you can go back and forth. But I, after s what all I have seen, and I, again, have gone back and forth, he was hashtag justified. I'm sorry. This man was terrorized. He was targeted. He was at his wit's end. They had taken everything from him, and he was definitely qualified in taking their life. They were all up in his home. They were in his sanctuary. And any any other decision is an attack on our rights to defend our home, period. I, I see that, and I, uh, I, I agree uh, in a large, large part with that. Uh, although we also live in a society of, of rules and laws and, and to protect each other from each other, and the way Byron handled this was horrible, horrible. And uh, I, I do not condone it in the least. Uh, I think he handled it completely wrong. But at the exact same time, and this is where uh, I hate to say that I'm straddling the fence, is because did he move his truck over there to get it out of sight, or did he move it away from vandals? Well, you know, that's questionable. Did he go in the, the bottom of his basement and sit in that chair waiting on him, or was he just there reading a book? Did he load his guns because he was afraid, or did he load his guns anticipating them walking in the door? So a lot of that can be interpreted. But the actual action of not only shooting someone, but shooting them repetitively over and over to make sure they are terminated. They are dead. That goes beyond the defense. That goes beyond neutralizing the threat. So you have to look at, was he justified in continuing pulling the trigger? Myself, I say yes. He just did it in a horrible fashion. But I say yes, he, he was justified in taking uh, those two teenagers' life because they were in his house unlawfully and committing a crime. But... There does have to be some accountability. You, you cannot condone everyone to stage the scene. You can't condone someone to absolutely, in an almost cold-blooded fashion, take someone's life 
and then wait 24 or excuse me 22 hours to notify the authorities uh it was just all really shady my final point on all this is that did he do right no no uh-uh. he, he didn't do right but he what he didn't do right was how he handled the situation not the situation itself the situation is two people broke into his house terrorized this man before they did it and he finally had enough the authorities wouldn't do anything for him and i think the argument can be made that he mentally was incapable of handling it properly i agree so should this man seek medical help definitely should this man go into a facility and be locked down i think so but i think it should be in the in the temporary insanity you know, uh, blanket. Yes. I, I think it should be if the DA can't do that and the DA doesn't want to do that or defeat it, however you want to put it, uh, could the DA prosecute him with not reporting a crime? He'd go to he'd go to prison for that. He's guilty of that, unquestionably. He did not report the crime. There you go. Uh, he tampered with evidence by moving the bodies, so you can prosecute him for that. So he did things wrong. But he didn't do enough wrong to deserve two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Keep in mind, this man was in his home. He didn't right. go out looking for this crime. He didn't go out soliciting that, hey, I'm going to kill two teenagers today. No, those teenagers came into his house, and he should not be prosecuted and spend the rest of his days in prison just because he handled things wrong. Right. And that's all that happened. He handled it wrong. And he was not in his mind, right mindset when it happened. And whose fault is that? The very people that they're calling victims. Right. He, you mean the terrorists? In the, the terrorists, yes. Right, which he was, let's face it, he was trained to deal with terrorism. Who are you or I to tell him how to deal with the terrorist? Right. He was trained by our government to deal with these situations. However, he did. And you talk about accountability. He did go to the police. He did reach out to for other means of solving his problem. What are you going to do when it's consistently not being handled, when you're consistently being victimized and targeted and terrorized? Well, a, a lot of crime and a lot of our judicial system uses the method of, of uh, assigning blame. And in this case, everyone, I don't say everyone, but a, a lot of people involved in the case, wanted to place the sole blame on Byron Smith. No. And I don't think he deserves it. I don't think he deserves the sole blame. He, he deserves some. He, he played an active role, and he didn't do it right. Right. Um, the teenagers, they deserve some of the blame. They played an active role, and they didn't do it right. They, they committed a felony and broke into a man's house. And then look at the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. They played an active role, and they didn't do it right. Right. So there's some blame to spread all over the place. Uh, I even go so far, and I hate to get into it because we've barely talked about it, but uh, I say the judge and the DA also has uh, an active role, and they didn't do it right, and right. they deserve some blame. The judge withheld so much information from the jury that convicted this man. Uh, they didn't know that the kids had already had a prior rap sheet. They didn't know that the teenager had already harassed this man. They didn't know that there was text messages 
um, having a premeditation of robbing this man more than once. They didn't know all of the fear that was in Byron Smith's heart on Thanksgiving Day. They didn't know any of that. All they know is this man just cold-blooded killed two people that came into his house, and yeah, he, he should have defended it, but he went far beyond defense. Well, his mental state is the reason he went beyond just right. defense. Right. And they drove him to insanity, these kids. I think so, too. And I think he should get off with time served. And uh, Well, 10 years. He's been there for over uh, 10 years. Right. I think that, that some of the lies and the um, legal system failed this man, and some of those things also need to be corrected. All right. Well, we've definitely discussed a very interesting case. Uh, if you're anything like me, you almost have many questions uh, exiting the podcast as you did coming in it. I, I know I do. I wish we could spend two and three episodes uh, going over it. It's just a huge case that we didn't realize it was that big when we get started. But if you've enjoyed the podcast and you've enjoyed listening about this case, we're definitely going to be bringing some more to you very soon. Uh, and look at what the just. Is it justified or is it justice handed down? If you have any opinions over what we've talked about today, please let us know in the comments. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, don't feel bad about being on either side of the fence. There's a lot of people that's for him. There's a lot of people against him. And hopefully next week we'll be looking at a similar situation and uh, we can make our thoughts then. Thank you so much, Miss Ella. Thank you so much. And if you have a story you'd like What the Just to feature on our show, comment below or email us at whatthejust at outlook.com. You can also find our podcast at whatthejust.transistor.fm.